Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, July 15th, and today Matt Bellany is here to talk about the Emmy nominations, and not just about Sebastian Stan's animated crotch being snubbed for Best Supporting Actor. As HBO racked up a ton of nominations, is Netflix losing in its efforts to win more prestige on the award circuit? And later on, Alex Bigler joins me for another round of Feedback Friday. She tells me what you puckheads have to say about this week's fabulous reporting on puck.news. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Friday, everybody. We don't take summer Fridays here at the powers that be. So I am joined today by Matt Bellany to talk about uh, the Emmy nominations that came out this week and what it means for all the platforms, streamers, networks, whatever they are. Matt, good to have you back on the show. Speak for yourself, by the way. I am definitely taking Summer Friday. This is half effort. I'm barely wearing clothes. It's true. Matt is shirtless right now in the Zoom. Uh, no one can see it. Um, <laughs> I want to I tee you up this way, Matt. HBO and HBO Max had 140 Emmy nominations, up from 130 last year. At some point in this podcast, you're going to have to explain to me how and why HBO and HBO Max are actually different networks. But They're not. I read in the LA Times today that they were like, tr- they were like different things. They were making such a big deal out of that. It, H, all of the HBO programming is available on HBO Max. They have the same creative team led by the same person. It is. Is a this just like Oppo being peddled by like Netflix? Total, or total Netflix Oppo. They're <laughs> trying to get them disqualified. HBO and HBO Max. It's the same day. It's the same content. There's just yeah. more 
on HBO Max. Okay, cool. I, I, I thought I was going crazy when I read that. All right, so the, here's the scoreboard for everyone listening. All right, HBO and HBO Max, 140 nominations, up from 130 last year. Netflix came in second with 105 nominations, but that's down considerably from last year's 129 nominations. So beyond what was nominated and what got snubbed and all that stuff, um, what, what's your takeaway from the the top line nominations here? Is this this is a, this is a bad a bad week for Netflix? Yet another bad week for Netflix. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it comes amid this kind of great correction of Netflix, where their stock is in the toilet, and there's real questions about the viability of their model, given that they lost subscribers last quarter for the first time. I mean, there's you know, there's some normal excuse for the lower total. They didn't have the crown this year. And The Crown is always an Emmy magnet. It actually won the top drama prize last year and usually generates 20-something nominations. So it was down there. And they did have a couple of shows break through this year. They had Squid, Squid Game, Game. Yeah. get in there as the first non-English language show ever to get a drama series nomination. And they had Inventing Anna in the limited series category. But for the most part, the nominations were down at Netflix. And that just causes everyone to say, oh, you know, what's going on there? Are they having a creative problem? Because Netflix takes more swings than any other network. They have the the highest programming budget for a, if you don't include sports, which Netflix doesn't air. And they have this fire hose of prestige content and middle brow content and lowbrow content and reality and all of the different categories that the Emmys nominates. And they still couldn't come up with enough nominations to match HBO. What was the last great show you watched on Netflix, Matt, that you just like loved? The last enjoyable show I watched probably was Love is Blind 2. Uh -huh. but, but that says a lot about Netflix. I mean, Netflix has slowly morphed from trying to be HBO at its outset to really trying to be CBS, NBC, and everything in the cable bundle. I mean, they're literally trying to compete on every front while at the same time making 70, 80 movies a year, which any movie executive will tell you if you're at that volume, you cannot be trying to make them all good. You're just trying to get them made. And HBO's brand for a long time, and I feel like they got away from this a little bit in, in recent years, but was always like, we make the most high-end, most premium, most must-see Sunday night TV series out there. And like it feels like that has them in the in the top spot again this year with Succession leading the way for them, White Lotus. The show that it got totally snubbed that I, I love because I think it said so much about race and politics and crime and corruption and a lot of issues uh, going on is, was was David Simon's We Own This City. But that was a you know the six-episode limited series. But that got no nominations. I love that. Yeah, and usually David Simon will get nominated, or he has a lot yeah. in the past, except for The Wire, obviously, which never famously won the best drama series and is considered one of the best shows of all time. That's right. It didn't win. You're right. Someone else, my, I think my brother told me that recently. That's wild. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like one of the biggest oversights in TV history. But HBO does take a lot of swings, and there were some, like Winning Time, the Lakers show, didn't get nominated on HBO. Yeah, I was a mad on that. I know you liked it more. I, I did like it more. But HBO has successfully managed to broaden the brand out with uh -huh. HBO Max to include more populist shows, some reality shows. And then you have something like Hacks, which is an HBO Max show uh -huh. and yet is an Emmy magnet and is, uh -huh. you know, and flight attendant as well. It's an HBO Max show designed to be a more populist and more like 
traditional broadcaster cable style show. Mm -hmm. And yet these are still getting nominee nominations. So HBO successfully broadened while still maintaining the quality. Netflix has not in the sense that, yes, they produce a ton of prestigious stuff and they produce a ton of other stuff. But if you ask the average person about the Netflix brand, I don't think they would put it on the same level as HBO. No, I don't think so either. And, I, and part of me thinks like Selling Sunset's a good example. Like they do have these like lowbrow to middlebrow reality shows that do pretty well. I'm not saying they should like own that, but like doing the prestige stuff just feels like you're never going to compete with HBO. Well, they want to compete with everyone. Apple wants to be HBO now. I mean, Hulu with all the nominations this year, they broke through and they have shows like The Dropout and Dope Sick and Only Murders in the Building and even Pam and Tommy got I some love nominations. Pam and Tommy. <laughs> you, you, you and a lot of people did. They lost me the talking penis. But uh, that's true. Here's what I'll say about that show. Again, this is not a critic show, but like I feel like that uh, Sebastian Stan and, and Lily James and Seth Rogen all got nominated for individual actor categories and Sebastian Sandal and James were awesome. The show itself was just a little like not all together there, but they were great actors. I was just like, them. what am I watching? Like, why am I watching? <laughs> At a certain point, I was like, why am I watching this? I know the story. I know what happens. But regardless, that show got nominated and Hulu is, you know, way up in nominations this year. They had 50 something nominations and that's without the FX programming. So that, that's a big coup. And I and I think that that's a testament to them investing in that kind of adult-oriented prestige-style shows that in many ways Netflix is not doing as much of anymore. We've also talked a lot in this pod about how the Oscars, the Academy Awards, feel like they increasingly nominate these like critical darlings that are watched by not very many people. Uh, you know, unlike back in the 90s and 2000s when like, the winner of Best Picture could also be like a movie like Titanic or Forrest Gump that like millions and millions of people saw. Do you think the Emmys are closer to the American mainstream in terms of like the the shows and, and people that are nominated compared to the Oscars? It's funny you say that because I was just texting about that with a prominent executive. And this executive was asking me if the Emmys get it more right than the Oscars do uh -huh. in terms of what the public actually likes. And I think the Emmys kind of do because uh -huh. there's always a Stranger Things that is thrown in there with the outstanding series nominees. There is, you know, Game of Thrones won, won yeah. the top prize a couple of years ago. And that obviously was hugely popular. It's a little bit different now because there are just so many shows. There aren't those big friends or Seinfeld. There aren't those style shows anymore. But there are shows that I think have dedicated audiences that do get nominated. I mean, The Mandalorian got nominated a couple of years ago in series. And that was a huge breakout for Disney+. Plus. Obviously, we don't know as much about the audience of these shows as we used to because streamers do not have next day Nielsen ratings. So we can say, oh, 30 million people watch Friends like we used to be able to say. Ted Lasso is a perfect example. I don't know that Ted Lasso is a hit because Apple doesn't right. reveal numbers, but we kind of know Ted Lasso is a hit. How many people do you know that watch it? Yeah, no, I know. If you went out on Halloween this last year, everyone was dressed up as, as some Ted Lasso character. Exactly. How can you and I get on an awards committee? Like, can we, are we eligible just being the sophisticated critics and media observers that we are? <laughs> uh, you know, it's hard to get into the Motion Picture Academy. You have to be nominated and uh, and you have to 
be submitted by current members. Yeah, it's yeah. a little easier to get into the television academy. I have not tried it myself, but I know some media people that are in. You could probably do it because you're you're a broadcast guy. I'd vote for you. Yeah, yeah. I'm a cultural observer. I think you got to pay your dues and you got to go to some events yeah. and things like that. I, I don't I don't have a, I don't have enough of a foothold in Los Angeles society to to work my way in there. Society. It's like screenings with free buffets and like listen to a Q&A. That's <laughs> not exactly cultural moments. All right. Uh, well, I want you to host the Emmys this year. That's my that's my one wish. You and I, I'll do me. it with you. That'd we'll do great. it shirt. We'll do it shirtless from Venice two white Beach. guys hosting the Oscars. Very on brand for this moment <laughs> in history. <laughs> uh, all right. Talk to you soon. Have a good all weekend. Right. You too. Welcome back, everybody. I'm joined now for a segment we like to call Feedback Friday with uh, my colleague, Alex Bigler, who has all the, uh, you have the goodies, you have the gossip, you have all the uh, insight into what Fritz is hearing from the inbox. Everything you would want to know about the inside maneuverings and workings of Puck, Alex has. What's going on this week? Tell me. Peter, so good to see you. It's been forever. I believe Matt Bellany had a lot to say in your earlier segment. So we have to keep it a little bit short. And I won't talk about how mad I am at your dog Boone for the Dodgers Cardinals game earlier this week. Um, <laughs> and I will just dive right in. I think you know that we have a summer intern who I've mentioned on the show before. His name is Jack. I was a little bit adamant about not wanting an intern at all. They're usually a lot of work and blah, blah, blah. Jack is fantastic. So whoever's lucky enough to, to get Jack after Puck, like congratulations in advance. But I was telling Jack that I was about to speak with you on the podcast and he had a question that I thought was fantastic, which he wanted to ask you how going to school in Washington impacted your relationship with politics. Because he feels like, you know, down in D.C. at Georgetown, some people get really into politics because that's everything there is, or they try to block it out because it's shoved down their throat all the time. So he was curious how that built your relationship. I love that question. I mean, I, first of all, my parents were journalists and I was a dork, so I had a relationship with politics growing up but um, in, in Richmond, Virginia. But when I went to Georgetown, worked for the paper, the Alt Weekly, where the cool kids worked who listen to Modest Mouse and stuff. Uh, we didn't work for the Square Hoya. We worked for the Georgetown Voice, which is where the cool kids were. Anyway, as an undergrad, first of all, like you're figuring out your way. So I was like on campus a lot and your world's kind of small. But, you know, the more you move up, you start to step out into the city more. I mean, going to DuPont Circle, which is like a mile and a half from Georgetown, felt very far. You know, I'd ride the bus there. So going to Capitol Hill felt really far. Um, but I had an internship after my junior year with... Chris Matthews on Hardball. Hardball. I try to do a Chris Matthews impression when I can. Anyway, all of that is to say, you just sort of like, when you go to school in DC, you drink it in. Like, it's just kind of like all around you. There's speakers on campus all the time. I'm currently on the board of the Georgetown Institute of Politics run by my pal Mo. And he, you know, focuses on bringing in fellows and speakers um, from all over the country and DC in particular. But, you know, it's, it's people intern in the city, People see guest speakers in the city, you know, even just listening to like the radio and watching TV and using social media in Washington politics is just ambient. So like, you know, if I went to 
another school in a different part of the country. I just don't think it would have been all around me at all times. And the uh, the only other thing I'll say is I, I actually wasn't super into into politics until the 2000 election um, when I was there. I actually I double majored in English and African studies, so I was into like foreign stuff. Uh, you know, I studied abroad in South Africa, and um, you know, was more in the School of Foreign Service than taking like government and politics classes. But when the 2000 election happened and then 9-11, I was at Georgetown when 9-11 happened, like my dorm felt the shockwave of the plane hitting the Pentagon and kind of sweeping across the Potomac and then rattled the windows of my dorm junior year. So um, impossible to escape politics, uh, but I'm glad at the same time that Jack is joining Puck because I feel like we have a good outside perspective on the political universe. It's easy to get sucked into the narrow field of view when you're in Washington all the time. Great. Thank you. I'll tell Jack or he can listen to the power. <laughs> I'll probably just listen, Bonnie. <laughs> hey, Jack. <laughs> so now I'd like to talk to you about a new product that we have for our, our inner circle members. Ooh. You have done a couple of phone calls, events for our inner circle members. So thank mm-hmm. you. You've always mm-hmm. been fantastic at them, but we're kind of taking it to the next level. And are rolling out a new product that actually like takes a sledgehammer to the fourth wall and we're calling it office hours. Okay. So what office hours are is it allows our inner circle members to sign up for one-on-one calls with our journalists like I you. Love that. If you were not a journalist, would you find that kind of an interesting, exciting proposition? I would. Uh, way better than tweeting at people, um, for sure. But you know, this is one this is one reason I was so enthusiastic about Puck. I mean, I've talked about this with you before, but John very smartly was like, not like formats can be anything. It could be a Zoom call. It could be a one-on-one call with a, with a reader. It could be a podcast. It could be anything. Like a, like journalism just doesn't have to be 2,000 dry black and white words in the New York Times, you know, and this is a, a different kind of journalism in a sense. So yeah. I'm, I'm excited for this. Um, good. I'm glad. Are you so getting good uh, engagement? We are. A lot of people are signing up and I'm glad you're excited. And it's exactly what you said. It's just a different way of being able to think about journalism. So are these phone calls or like, like Zoom Zoom calls? Yeah, Zoom calls calls, one on one, 15 minutes. Um, Uh And people can ask questions like, Julia, what's Putin's end game? Or Dylan, how do you make your hair look that good? You know, there's really the sky is the limit here. So we're super excited. Um, and I can't wait to hear your feedback on it when when you do one. I am excited. Hopefully I don't have uh, FSB agents dialing in like Julia will. Um, so we'll see. No, that's anyway. not going to happen. I can't run, I run, a, <laughs> I run a tight ship, okay? Um, I have two more things I would like to talk to you about. Mm-hmm. One is we did get some feedback this week that I absolutely agree with. The feedback is that we could be doing a lot more with our Twitter handle. Mm. I agree. And that is why we are hiring for a social media manager here at Puck who will be responsible for all of our social platforms and will work directly with me. Isn't that exciting for everybody listening? So I mean, that's a premier job in media, I feel like, especially for a young person. I mean, we're growing, we're exciting, we're buzzy, but, you know, at the same time, we're new. So there's lots of opportunity to innovate and play around. I'm hyped about that. You heard Peter Hamby. He's hyped and you should be hyped too. (laughs) So if anyone listening is interested in applying for this job, 
You can find it on our site or email fritz at puck.news and we'll be happy to send you the application. I love that. Cool. All right. Yeah. Everyone apply, especially if you're like slightly under the age of uh, 30. (laughs) (laughs) My thumbs are tired from all the tweeting, so we need someone else to do it. And I have one more exciting piece of news for you, which is a little bit of a teaser in that we have some pretty exciting news in the entertainment space that will be coming in the next week. So I can't tell you about it right now, but I want you to get hyped for it. Is this the biopic about Matt Bellany that that just got acquired by Sony? No? Starring Ben Affleck? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, That's what I heard. That's what I heard. (laughs) By the way, if you're listening, I don't even know what this is. So I'm excited. It's not every day I get to surprise Peter Hamby. So (laughs) thank you for giving me this opportunity to do so. You are very welcome. All right, Alex, have a great weekend. Thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. Have a great weekend. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 